as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the sixth and- Okay everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bored as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I am Andy Wilson, aka Citizen Bot, also a Big Shiny Robot And this week we have uh, four films for you uh, Carol, Joy, The Big Short <laughs> Short and also Hateful Eight. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Uh, as well as our worst movies of the year. Uh, next week we'll be coming back with our huge Star Wars spoiler episode where we're going to discuss and dissect all of the cool stuff at Star Wars, which actually just hit a billion dollars oh, at the box office. One billion dollars. <laughs> um, and it hasn't even opened in China yet. So it's, yeah, it's, it's going strong. Uh, and then next week, we'll also present to you our, our five best movies of the year. Um, but the first one we want to talk about this week is Carol. Uh, so, Andy, what did you think about that one? Yeah. So, Carol, you may have noticed, racked up uh, five Golden Globe, Globe nominations. Actually led with the most Golden Globe nominations of any film this year. And I sat in this theater and literally almost fell asleep. Uh, it is just yeah. boring, and you know I love Kate Blanchett. I love Rooney Mara. Um, this I love Kyle Chandler. All of them do a great job in this film, and it's it's just boring as hell. And I I don't know exactly what happened. Uh, it's a great story. It's based on a novel called The Price of Salt uh, about uh, a woman named Carol. Uh, who is in a very unhappy marriage with uh, an overbearing husband. Uh, that's your Kate Blanchett and your Kyle Chandler. Um, well, it's not a very loving marriage because, well, she's gay. And, you know, this is the 50s, and they don't really know what that means, or it's certainly not socially acceptable. Uh, it's illegal. Um of course, uh, the husband's trying to use this in divorce proceedings that she has unhealthy relationships with other women uh, to try and either get her institutionalized or uh, or to get sole custody of their daughter. Um, so, yeah, remember this is the 50s. This should be fraught with drama, and it just doesn't get pulled off very well. Um, enter young Rooney Mara, who uh, Carol meets in a department store while looking for a present for her daughter for Christmas. Yes, it's a Christmas story. And yes, spare me your Christmas Carol jokes. Ugh, just awful. Um, so uh, they meet and form a, a fast friendship relationship that goes somewhere between like soulmates and uh, unrequited love um, because of course this is the love that dare not speak its name Um, Rooney Mara doesn't even really know what's going on uh, with her own self Uh, she has a fiance um, who she's loath to actually commit to because of course we understand she is gay (laughs) and um, (laughs) You know, the, the, that's what's really interesting in all of this is we think back on that society and the, the oppressive nature of the social conformity of the 1950s. 
and uh, the inequality faced by women, especially in that time. And it's just, you know, it's just awful. And this film does not do it justice. Uh, it should have been so much better. It was just very boring. The The performances were fine. Um, but I don't know why everyone is fawning over this for Oscars. I think the Weinstein company just must have very nice gift baskets that they give out to the Hollywood foreign press. And there you go. Uh, four out of 10. Yeah. yeah I saw the, the trailers the for it and, and everything about it. And it just, just screamed, screamed mediocrity and crying out for, you know, just a, an award of some site type and the, the golden globes, you know, they're, they're fun. I always had, you know, you know, award seasons upon us. So it's fun to sit down and watch them. But really, you know, they don't. It's kind of like the, I don't know, the, the kids' table of the hall of the <laughs> of the big Hollywood parties because the Hollywood Forum Press, no one cares. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it's, getting the Golden Globe is a big deal and it's fun. But this is the one where they all go and get drunk and stumble on stage or trip over themselves going on stage to get their award. So, um, I don't know. The Golden Globes are fun, but I've, I've never really put much stock into. Um, their awards mean anything for the big ones coming up, like the Oscars, the SAG Awards, the Directors Guild, that kind of stuff. I'll agree with that, but I'll disagree. When I saw this trailer, I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to be gripping. This is going to be very meaningful. I need to see this because those are great actors, and I want to see their craft on full display. And, yeah, I have some feelings um, for... Um, for Blanchette and Mara and their and their love that that just can't work uh, for so many reasons and how it it should have been far more heartbreaking and they just they just did not pull that off well. Yeah. So all right, well that's that's kind of disappointing because like that, that, it's a very interesting story that sounds like it it could have been presented in a much better way. I mean, if you look at the kind of the birth of the gay rights movement, it started in the 50s with the Mattachine Society, which was started by uh, two lesbians who I, I believe recently actually got married and then before they passed on. Um, so there was so much there to kind of work with and it just kind of sounds like they blew it. Yep, totally. Cool. Uh, speaking of another movie that uh, actually I was interested in seeing because of the trailer, um, we have Joy, which is the semi-true story kind of uh, embellished a bit of Joy Mangiano. She was the woman who invented the Wonder Mop, which I'm sure if any one of us ever watched QVC or had parents, um, your mom probably owned this thing. It was uh, a self-ringing mop, so when you're busy doing the floors and you got dealing with all the nasty stuff in the bathroom, you didn't have to actually like touch the mop with your hand. Um, and before then, this, this was a brand new idea. So uh, it, this film is by David O. Russell, and it stars Jennifer Lawrence as Joy Mangiano, who is a struggling single mother. Uh, she's divorced. She's trying to take care of her kids while also trying to take care of her kind of shut-in mother who sits and just watches uh, soap operas in her bedroom. And then her father, who's kind of a womanizer and uh, played by Robert De Niro. And, you know, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Kind of like he never grew up. Kind of like, you know, we... He owns his own business, but he, he's whatever. 
And so she has always been an inventor. She's been inventing things since she was a kid, um, different ideas. <clears throat> and none of them really came to fruition. Well, one day, she gets this idea to make this mop. And so she takes it. She makes a bunch of them. She tries to sell them. Nothing happens. She goes into debt with her uh, with her father's new girlfriend, who's this rich kind of like <clears throat> hoity-toity um, widow, widow who says, yes, we'll give you some money. And it all just nothing really works. And then finally, she takes it and she, uh, her ex-husband, who's still really good friends with her, tells her about this new startup TV channel called QVC. And maybe she should try to go sell her mop on that. So she goes there and meets the executive producer of the whole network, who's played by Bradley Cooper. And actually a role I enjoyed him in, which I'm not a really big Bradley Cooper fan. And so he says, yes, we'll, we'll definitely put it on air. Uh, go make 15,000 of these by Monday, and we'll start selling them. Well, the person they have who's on the QVC to sell them off doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't really like Joy, and it all kind of flops and falls apart. So as her life's kind of coming unraveled, she goes to Bradley Cooper and says, hey, let me go on air and sell them off myself. And finally he agrees. She does, and boom, it just takes off. It blows up. I mean, she sells 30,000 mops in half an hour, and everything looks to be really successful. Well, there's kind of a downside because the person she was dealing with through her father and his girlfriend, um, he was a shady character who owned this company who was making the parts. There's a patent lawsuit involved. Um, and that's actually kind of where the movie falls apart. Um, for me... The first half of the movie leading up to her going on QVC is all about her overcoming trials and overcoming adversity and showing you know how stalwart and strong a woman she is. The movie would have been better <clears throat> represented and her story would have had, you know, you get to that halfway mark, you go through all this struggle, all this adversity, boom, everything blows up, she becomes successful. And let's take the second half of the movie and show her success. Show where she went, how it helped her. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't do that. It just falls right back into, oh, poor, struggling, joy, you know, let's watch Jennifer Lawrence act her ass off, which she does. The performances here are amazing. I mean, she does a fantastic job. Again, she deserves any nomination she gets for this. Uh, David Russell <clears throat> very much knows how to bring a great performance out of his actors and actresses. And, yeah, the movie does have the happy ending where it kind of shows – because she went on to become, you know, the quote-unquote queen of QVC. Um, she was heavily involved in the Home Shopping Network. In fact, pretty much all of us probably have something in our houses that she invented. I mean, she's she's almost 60 now, and she's still, you know, incredibly fantastic designer and inventor. But, um, Andy, you saw the movie Maximum Overdrive, right? Sure, yeah. So, you know at the end, when it, all of a sudden everything goes... You know, it goes to the credits, and all of a sudden, a little paragraph comes up, and it's like, "Oh, by the way, we discovered there were aliens in the clouds," and blah blah blah. And that was like the epilogue. Yeah, <laughs> this movie like, is what? almost almost that bad. It's not quite, but there's a scene at the end where you know we finally learn everything's going to go well, and it's Jennifer Lawrence walking down the street, and she looks into a toy shop, and then the whole movie's being narrated by her grandmother, which is kind of a cool thing. Um, but all of a sudden, Grandma's like, "Well," and as Joy sat there. She didn't know that in 10 years this was going to happen and this was going to happen. And you have these little vignettes of her as an adult meeting Bradley Cooper, or not an adult, she's an adult now, you know, her 20 years from now. 
seeing Bradley Cooper again and doing this and doing that. And, you know, it's they take the whole story that what should have been the second half of the movie and wrap it up into a little five minute segment that says, and then this happened and this happened and this happened. And it was like, really, you, you could have that should have been half your movie. It was showing her success. And as much as this almost wants to play out like a modern fairy tale, you know, she's like the Cinderella with the bad parents. You don't get the happily ever after the way you should. You, you get the, it's all wrapped up in a, like a five minute segment instead of being the part of the movie it should have been. So it's, it's really good performances. It's about 15 minutes too long. And the tone of the movie is so all over the place. Um, it's it's a huge fallback for David Russell. So I'm uh, I'm at a five point five uh, for the performances alone. They are well done. Robert De Niro is great. Uh, we haven't really had much from him that was entertaining or even interesting, but he does a good job here. Uh, but Jennifer Lawrence definitely knocks that out of the park as his character. Yeah, De Niro almost ended up on my bottom five list for the intern, but not quite. <laughs> I forgot about that movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, that's that's unfortunate. I mean, you'd think David O. Russell, Jennifer Lawrence, Bradley Cooper—that's a winning combination. Like, well, and they've already done like Silver Linings Playbook and uh, the, an American Hustle. American and, Hustle. Yeah. It's like let's yeah let's do that again. That'll that'll do great. And nope. Nope. Yeah. Sorry. And, and apparently, the the real Joy Manjano, she was, uh, I believe, billed as the executive producer. So I'm kind of wondering, was her name just there for the hell of it? Or did she actually have any kind of creative input? Because, yeah, it's like, it's, you know, I, I have no problems. Like, uh, Southpaw is a great example of a movie where the character went through tons and tons of struggle and had his life torn apart. And even in that, you know, the middle part of that, it almost got too much where we were joking about it was like the, the, the struggles of Job with his character. And that's kind of here. But instead of it turning around and becoming the happy ending, it just it goes and goes and goes and goes, and you just can't eat popcorn to that. So, <laughs> yeah, kind of a kind of a downer for a Christmas movie. I mean, I guess Carol was a downer for a Christmas movie too. Yeah, you no. Know? Well, and for a name like Joy, I kind of expect the the trailers really make this look like oh, she brings so much happiness to people's lives, and yeah, you know, there's going to be drama, yeah. but. Um, well, and that's and it, it gets it comes across as a dramedy, um, and it's, it's nominated for best uh, musical or comedy for the Golden Globes. But I don't know where they got. The, I mean, yeah, there are a couple of funny lines, and there are you know, one or two laugh out loud moments. But this is very, very much a serious film, and it's definitely in the wrong category. Well, there you go. Well, here's a movie that should be in the wrong category too: The Big Short. Which, if you're going to make a movie about the 2008 financial collapse that almost destroyed the world economy and made us, like, made the entire world implode, you wouldn't expect that to be a laugh-out-loud rollicking comedy. But, if you go hire Adam McKay from the Anchorman movies and uh, yes. <laughs> uh, Funny or Die, SNL, uh constant writing companion with uh, Will Ferrell on a lot of different things and make him your writer and uh, and director then you end up with a kind of crazy madcap movie that 
gives you all sorts of spoonfuls of sugar to help this nasty medicine go down, which would otherwise be dry, boring finance and economics. Um, that is what you would expect out of a an economics 201 college class or something they're talking about on CNBC. Um, this is another pairing of uh, uh, Brad Pitt as executive producer uh, adapting the work of the same journalist who uh, who wrote Moneyball. So um, there's there's a little bit of that flavor in here. If you enjoyed Moneyball and you're like, oh, here's a movie about applied statistics in baseball, two of the most boring things on the planet. Oh, and wow, this is actually pretty entertaining. You get some of that here. But the real, real stars here are actually your trio of your stars. You have Christian Bale, uh, you have Steve Carell, and you have Ryan Gosling. Uh, And Christian Bale plays a kind of rogue fund uh, trader uh, living out in California named Michael Berry. And Michael Berry starts to put together this math that says, hey, we have all of these mortgage-backed securities and starting in like 2007, they're going to start failing. And he figured all, all the math out and he said, we can make a lot of money if we bet against them because the entire market is predicated on the idea mm-hmm. that people are going to pay their mortgages and the mortgage market is going to maintain a fairly normal semblance of stability and so if we bet against it we'll get huge payouts well no one's offering anything like that well what if i go to goldman sachs and say why don't you design this for me and they're like yeah sure we'll gladly take your money from you that you're (laughs) betting against these products that we know are fine um so then word starts to get around on wall street and uh a trader at Deutsche Bank, uh, played by, uh, or I guess it's Deutsche Bank, sorry, uh, played by Ryan Gosling, who is so good that you forget it is Ryan Gosling through most of this movie. He has this great, like, black wavy hairpiece on, and he's so abrasive and so awful that you're like, man, that guy's really charismatic, but I hate him. It's beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, And then you have Steve Carell uh, playing another Wall Street trader uh, who has his own fund. And uh, he also hears about um, these mortgage-backed securities and he's like, no way that there's underlying instability in the mortgage market, is there? And he and his team start doing some digging and they're like, no, this is legit. The economy is going to collapse. And we're going to bet against it. So you have all of these, all of these people betting against the market, and uh, and a few others as well, um, uh, who are some other side characters doing this. You have Brad Pitt, uh, who's playing an ex Wall Street trader who's trying to live off the grid um, because he's done with that life, but he's helping out some uh, these guys running. Uh, what what they refer to as a garage band hedge fund mm-hmm. and uh and helps them put a bunch of money in into this as well um 
what all of them run into is a system that even when the mortgages start collapsing, they start protecting themselves for all sorts of reasons. And the ratings agencies are in on it. The regulators are in on it. And they're all trying to like pretend that, oh, no, 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 no. The emperor is wearing plenty of clothes. It's <laughs> all fine until it just isn't fine anymore. And the crap goes down. Um, so it's it's a really eye-opening uh, look into just how bad and how corrupt the system is, which would be awful and depressing if it weren't so funny and if they didn't do great things like bring in celebrities and cutaway scenes to help explain these crazy financial things. Like, yeah, I heard there's uh, someone in a bubble bath. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> to make this part of the movie more interesting, here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath. <laughs> um, here's Selena Gomez and a professor of behavioral economics from Harvard uh, playing uh, playing blackjack in Vegas to explain how all of this side betting works. Here's Anthony Bourdain uh, to explain exactly uh, how all of this works. And it's it's great. They they really bring it down to a a normal level mm-hmm. and explain these very complex processes and and help you figure out exactly just how bad it is. Now, it is not subtle. It is so not subtle that, for instance, when Steve Carell and his team go to Moody's, one of the credit rating agencies, to try and confront uh, to try and confront them about, hey, you guys are essentially perpetrating fraud by rating all of these as uh, you know, as credit worthy. Triple um, A, yeah, triple A credit worthy. Uh, the the woman that they talk to literally is blind. Uh, she just came back from the eye doctor and she's got, she had her pupils dilated and she's got one of those uh, block out uh, sunblocker things on and she's like I can't read anything you put in front of me um, it's good not subtle um, also good not subtle uh, Karen Gillan uh, who we may remember from Guardians of the Galaxy or Doctor Who uh, shows up and she's supposed to be an SEC regulator, but no, she's just there to party in Vegas with all of the Wall Street guys because they throw great parties and she's trying to get a job with one of them. Again, <laughs> it's good, not subtle, but that, I mean, that tells you everything you need to know about the cops who are supposed to be watching Wall Street and regulating this stuff and how out to lunch they were. Um, it's it's great. It's beautifully told. Steve Carell, I complained a lot last year about Steve Carell's Oscar nomination. Well, because he was did not, Yeah, I did not think that that was great. He is amazing in this film. He, he plays a great character, probably the best developed character of anyone in this movie he has real motivations and uh, a, a great story arc and is just just phenomenal 
Uh, Christian Bale does the same thing Christian Bale always does. And he he makes us believe that he's this um, metal-listening, flip-flop and shorts-wearing mm-hmm. rogue trader who's a genius that the entire world is out to get because he's so... Um, he's so out there. Um, This is, I cannot go off on how great this is. When we get to our best of next week's, um, this is in my top 10. It's not in my top five, but it is in my top Mm -hmm. 10 of the year because I just, I thought it was so entertaining and so important. And uh, I, I just can't say enough great things about this movie. Eight and a half out of 10. Nice. Um, This was the one I was lobbying to go see on Christmas uh, when I go to my mother-in-law's house for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We always see a movie, and uh, we end up seeing Joy, which again I was glad to see because that was, you know, there were some good parts in it. But this is the one I lobbied hard for and uh, got overruled on. So uh, another one to hopefully see this week when I have some time off work. <laughs> the, the good thing is, if you don't see this on a big screen, if you wait for this to come out on video or Netflix. You're not missing a whole lot, and uh, you know this might be a really good movie to go see in an Alamo Draft House or a Brewies or a place like that, and have a couple of drinks and really enjoy. Um, so again, you're not you don't feel like you're taking your medicine of any <laughs> seminar about economics. So cool. Well, that's 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 one to add on there, um, and another one I think we. Well, we haven't really discussed too much, but I know I think we both liked one more than the other was uh, The Hateful Eight, which is, uh, interestingly enough, Tarantino's eighth movie. Uh, and it's also very much a Western, kind of in the vein of Django Unchained, but not. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, the biggest thing with this and the, the plot, it's... I don't want to go too much into detail because it's almost like Star Wars. There's lots of twists and turns, and there's some really cool moments that you should really get to experience for yourself because as much as it's a Western, it's also very much almost like an Agatha Christie mystery, trying to figure out what's going on, who did what, uh, what went where. Um, But the basic story is it takes place after the Civil War. Um, I think as the movie says, six, eight, 12, who knows when, after the Civil War. And we come across a bounty hunter, Major Marquis, uh, Marcus Warren, excuse me, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson, and he has three dead bodies. He's trying of outlaws. He's trying to take to the town of Red Rock. Um, well, he gets encountered uh, by Kurt Russell, who's playing John Ruth, the hangman, who is also taking his bounty to Red Rock. Uh, he always brings them in alive so he can watch them hang. He's known as the hangman. Um, he's bringing in Daisy Domergue, uh, Jason, Jennifer Jason Lee, who is absolutely fantastic here. Um, she is apparently the sister of the, uh, <clears throat> the head of a huge outlaw bandit gang, and she's worth a huge fortune. So Samuel L. Jackson convinces uh, Kurt Russell to let him, you know, kind of tag along for the ride. Um, they've known each other previously, and they're met by uh, <clears throat> Walter Goggins, who is Chris Mannix, who says he is the sheriff of Red Rock. And Kurt Russell thinks it's all kind of weird because why would the sheriff of the town they're going to randomly be running around in a blizzard? Oh, and they're actually they're trying to escape a blizzard. They're heading to this town before the blizzard sets in. 
Well, they don't quite get there. Uh, they end up stuck at yeah, uh, Mini's Haberdashery, which is kind of like an inn slash restaurant slash uh, rest stop. And once they're there, uh, they meet a ragtag group of people. There's uh, a guy who says he's the hangman for Red Rock. Again, kind of weird that the, the same town they're all going to, they meet the hangman and the sheriff in the same way there. Uh, Bruce Dern plays a retired uh, Civil War uh, general from the Confederate side who has history with um, Samuel Jackson's character. And Oh, boy, does he. Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, there's a, a very good monologue that uh, Sam Jackson does with him, a story he tells. That's probably one of the best moments in the film. And to be honest, that's about all I can say is that these these people are stuck in Minnie's haberdashery while this huge blizzard is going on around them. And uh, someone there may or may not be friends with their fugitive they're bringing to justice, and they may or may not be trying to help her. And, yeah, I, I can't really give away too much more because that's kind of the whole fun of, of figuring out what's going on. Exactly. Um, the movie is presented in six parts, so that's that's very Tarantino-ish to have those... Um, multi-part things. Uh, it was filmed in 70 millimeter, and there is a roadshow version going around, which I know that Andy saw. Um, they were supposed to screen it for us, but apparently there were some audio glitches, so they showed us the theatrical version. Um, if you can go see the roadshow version, please do. All my friends who've seen it liked it better. Uh, it includes an overture at the beginning and also an intermission, because as much as it's a six-part movie, it is divided into two very specific acts, and in fact, uh, in the theatrical version, you know, it, act one ends, it fades to black, and then the second act comes up. Well, it's been about 15 minutes since we saw you last. Let's fill you in on what happened. And it would have been really fun to have had that 15 minutes to, you know, take a break and discuss what just happened. Uh, because the first half of the movie is very, very much, it's all about the dialogue. I mean, Tarantino's a master with script writing. Uh, his And the dialogue is very fast-paced, very interesting. And in the second half of the movie, we get kind of the more the the typical, um, I guess, over-the-top violence and action, which we're used to from his movies. Uh, but at the same time, the one thing I loved, loved, loved about this was um, Tarantino tends to make very stylized versions of um, the genres he's making. So Django Unchained was a stylized Western. Uh, Kill Bill was a stylized samurai film. Uh, this one to me felt like a straight up Western. I mean, yes, we had, you know, the really crisp and strong dialogue and the blood and gore, but it wasn't, he wasn't pulling his little tricks like he did with Kill Bill and Beatrix Kiddo or other things. I mean, it was shot beautifully. Um, I, I absolutely love it. It's, it's for me, it's fighting out with Mad Max for my top spot for movie of the year. Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. If, this movie is at all appealing to you and you can go see the 70 millimeter version, go and see it. Uh, I, this is a movie to behold on a giant screen because if, if you look at what 70 millimeter gives you, I mean, you're, you're giving yourself, you know, an extra several, if we're talking about our TVs here, you get an extra several inches off of you know, your normal aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And Tarantino really knows how to fill up that frame. And some of the some of the shots that he has out in 
the out in the mountains of Wyoming are just absolutely gorgeous. Um, absolutely hands down, this should get the all the awards for best cinematography. It it's amazing. Tarantino deserves a a best director nomination for this um, because it's just so beautifully and technically put together. Now, here is where you and I part ways. And it is that I think, and this is a problem I've had with Tarantino for a little while, is that one, guy needs an editor. Two, (laughs) with, with great filmmaking power comes great filmmaking responsibility. And I feel like I am tired of Tarantino doing something that is an homage to or a version of and giving us a synthesized modern movie told by Quentin Tarantino of all of his favorite stuff and not us getting more like any sort of new illumination on the human condition or um, some sort of bold step forward in what it means to make a modern movie the way that I mean he really reinvented a lot of what we expect from films putting Pulp Fiction out there and you know people have been aping that since 1994 and I keep waiting for Tarantino to take that next step. And The Hateful Eight is absolutely amazing. Yes, it's in my top ten for the year. It's it's beautiful, but it's not it's not my favorite. Because I mm. think that it is a little bit light on on that. I I wish it could have been more. And I think that if Tarantino learned how to simplify a little bit, that he could get back at at some of this essence. And um, I, I just, I wish he'd done that. I feel like he said, you know what's a great title for my eighth movie? The Hateful Eight. So I need to have <laughs> eight characters. Here's eight amazing characters. And it's like, okay, that's great. I'm glad that you can give us eight really great, rich characters with amazing dialogue and awesome backstories. And you found a way to put Michael Madsen in your movie again. And, and you gave us more Tim Roth and, and all of these things. It's great, but it's like, it's the equivalent of going to one of those places that has like a 10 pound burrito challenge. It, it doesn't matter at some point how good that steak or that chicken or, uh, or that carnitas pork or whatever is in that burrito is. There's so much of it that you eventually get to a point of diminishing returns and it, if it had just been a giant three-pound burrito, you probably would have been just as satisfied. And in, in many ways more so because it 
didn't insist upon being so huge and making you take it all in. Um, that being said, I rather enjoyed sitting in a theater for three <laughs> hours with an overture and an intermission. Um, this is kind of like, it's like, oh, well, we're going to go see an unabridged version of Hamlet. And it's like, oh, oh, really? Okay, so you're going to sit in a theater <laughs> for four hours. Okay, that is totally cool. Like, if if you love Hamlet that much and you want to hear every word, great. But if people can take Hamlet, which is one of the greatest pieces of English literature ever and find ways to hone it down into two hour, two and a half hour versions that keep uh, the same basic elements, I feel like someone needs to be able to take Tarantino and like help him focus uh, and and that's what I that's what I want to see. Um, but I I feel really bad because I'm nitpicking so much at a movie and bitching about it uh, that I really, really loved. Um, I mean, really, I only liked this the tiniest little bit less than the big short. I mean, it's like literally you could flip a coin and, and, and both of those are equally as good for me. So I'm again at an eight and a half out of 10. And you know, it's you mentioned the nitpicking thing, but as we brought up in, uh, when we reviewed the good dinosaur, was that certain certain directors and certain film companies uh, are held to that higher standard because they've created such ma- you know masterpieces? I mean, you know, when you compare the Good Dinosaur to Inside Out, you know, it's almost like it's you you can't compare them. Uh, so yeah, for Tarantino, who is one of my favorite directors, there's a high bar I've set. Um, that being said, this blew that bar away for me. Uh, it's it's easily his best movie, and you know, it's kind of funny that you mentioned. He needs an editor. When for me, I felt like it was his most. Uh, it was very sharply edited. Everything in it that you know, every scene, every shot, every word of dialogue played a part. Uh, you know, the opening scene. I, again, I, I saw the theatrical version, so I can't compare it to the overture and everything else. Um, where they're just focused on um, this this sign and like you know what the shows goes by and it's building up and building up, and building up. Um, as almost unnecessary as that felt, it was playing out how the movie was going to go as far as the tension starts slow, starts slow, then it's a slow burn, build up, build up, build up, build up, and then boom, it takes off. Uh, it, it, yeah, it is absolutely gorgeous. We both agree on that. Uh, I would still give cinematography to Mad Max over this uh, just because that film was masterfully done as far as that's concerned. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, what I liked best about it was, you know, as much as we kind of describe this, for me, this was Tarantino restraint. This was his making, you know, an actual movie and not a Tarantino movie. Because again, as much as it has the dialogue and you know, it, it definitely has the blood and gore. <laughs> this is not one to take your kids to. Uh, also, there's there's a lot of nudity still <laughs> in one certain scene, which we mentioned with Sam Jackson. Yep. Uh, no, it's not Sam Jackson. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, God, that scene was was both horrible and amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, it this is for me Tarantino at his finest. He he told a good story. He threw in some really great twists and turns. Um, the performances are fantastic. Uh, I mean, Sam Jackson's always great. 
Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah, I mean, she's going to win every award this year for you know Best Supporting Actress. I mean, she's already won, I believe, for the Utah Film Critics. She's been nominated for Golden Globes. I expect to see her at the Academy Awards. Uh, this this you know blew it away. Um, I guess the one complaint I would have was that some of the characters, uh, Michael Madsen in particular, uh, at the haberdashery, they don't really dive too much into them. I mean, you, you get their backstories and who they are, um, and I guess his character kind of is the the quiet in the background doing whatever. Uh, but that being said, if you you know, if we go from the the western part of the movie and again look at it as the Agatha Christie whodunit side, that's kind of how those went as well. Um, so it's his loving homage to two genres that, for me, are some of my favorites. Um, we were joking the other day about movies uh, Murder by Death and Clue, which are again themselves spoofs of the whodunit murder mystery. Um, but Hateful Eight is. It just wonderfully captures the best of those both genres. Um, throw in one of the, one of the best scripts of the year. Um, definitely, I think will be up for uh, best original screenplay, and it's it's utterly fantastic. I even though I was in the theater for two hours and forty five minutes without an intermission because again we saw the theatrical cut, um, it flew by. I mean, I didn't look at my watch once. I wasn't like, holy crap, where is this going? Uh, it ended perfectly. I, you know, I, I always say. I look at a movie and even though I'm not a filmmaker, you know, I mentioned with joy things I would have done differently had I told this story. Um, I think we can all be storytellers and have an idea of how to present that story. Uh, looking at this, there's not one thing I, I would have done differently. So um, I'm a little bit higher. I actually am at a 10 on this. It's, it's one of my favorites of the year. Uh, it doesn't open wide until the 31st. So you've got till meters to go see it. Um, but if you can, Check out the 70 millimeter roadshow version. Uh, if not, the theatrical version is just fine. But you are missing some bits, and it would have been nice to have had that break in between the acts. Um, one to stretch your legs because <laughs> it's a long movie, um, and two, yeah, there's some really cool dialogue and things that would have been, you know, nice to have discussed for that brief break before you dive back in and finally get to uh, figure out what happened. Well, and you really need a breather at that point too. I mean. It is just like a giant climax right there. And, oh, yeah. You know, that is that is one thing that I've got to give credit to Tarantino for is that each of those chapters has its own pace and has its own climax, and it ends. And um, they're, they're all somewhat separate stories, and there's a chapter that's told out of sequence so that we go back and see all the setup and mm-hmm. um, it it's all just great um, and it, it also leaves you hanging because something big just happened and you're like wait no don't <laughs> like I want to see what happened not <laughs> how how the the setup all happened so it's really it it really is great storytelling and um, uh, the the other thing that I've got to give a shout out to is uh, Greg Nicotero did the special effects here. Um, who like I mean he's a he's a legend. Um, basically invented all of the best like zombie gore that we can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, going going back to um, all of the of the dead movies and. Uh, worked on walking dead too right he's been one of the visual effects guys there i can't remember um 
and I'm sure Tarantino's worked with him before. But when I saw his name on the credits, I'm like, oh, that's why that effect looked so great. Mm -hmm. Because it was was him looking on it. So yeah, this is um, very, very bloody and very um, realistic bloody. I mean, there are movies where, you know, somebody gets shot and it's like, oh yeah, that hurt, but they're not like bleeding for the rest of the movie. Oh yeah. No, this is you know, the same as I, I felt like there was a little bit of that reservoir dogs element in mm-hmm. here, um, where that violence is very visceral and it is kind of that who done it, who's the who's the rat in this in this group that that sold us all out. And um so it's it's a good connection back to Tarantino's roots as well. He's good at telling these kind of stories of um, creating these these very specific characters, and um, so uh, yeah, I feel I feel almost bad like complaining as much about a movie that I loved so much. But um, yeah, uh, he's he's absolutely great, and yeah. that yeah, please go see the. Um, the 70 millimeter version. If, if you're in the Austin area, call me, I'll come with you. Let's go see. <laughs> like, I would totally go again. Um, um and we didn't mention actually too, uh, the soundtrack, uh, the score, oh, yeah. uh, was done by Ennio Morricone, who is, uh, very well known. He's done over 500 film scores. Um, especially well known for like the good, the bad and the ugly. Once upon a time in the West, uh, Lacage, once upon a time in America. And that was another thing that, again, my, th- point of uh tarantino being restrained because his movies are almost as well known as well um they're as well known as that he does them as much as the soundtrack he involves and i think there was maybe only one possibly two modern songs thrown in but the rest of it was just a straight up score yeah it for for those who are looking for something kind of similar um, there was a video game a couple years back, Red Dead Redemption, mm-hmm. um, that was very much the same. It had that kind of spaghetti western score feel going on, and then in between the acts, there were actual like modern pieces of music that were um, that were totally appropriate uh, and and had kind of a western flair or like a, a spaghetti western or a um, like a, a Mexican. Um, uh, sort of flair on it, mm-hmm. uh, like ranchero music or something like that. So uh, the, so yeah, I I felt they did that really well. There's a there's a scene where Jennifer Jason Lee actually plays a song on a guitar, and um, and that's in there. Uh, yeah, that soundtrack was was great, and like you said, very restrained and very. Uh, I, I will say this. I mean, I'm not bagging on John Williams' Force Awakens score, but the score for The Hateful Eight was better. Oh yeah, I gotta. I would agree as well. I gotta go with that. Um, I might. I might even say that the score for Mad Max was better than than the John Williams score because I, as much as I love the the Star Wars score, um, all of the best pieces in The Force Awakens were, um pieces that he took from previous star wars movies so mm-hmm. oh which is which is yeah. great like yeah. don't get you, yeah you can't you can't blame someone for you know 
you don't want to mess with perfection is the <laughs> is the phrase. When I, when I go see the Rolling Stones, I want them to play the hits, you know? Yeah. Like that's that's okay. I wanted that's what I wanted, and I can't be mad at John Williams for giving me a Star Wars score. So but this was but this was great because it was new, it was inventive, and it fit the film very well. So cool. So overall, this week we had some, you know, a couple duds, but really strong uh, films with both The Big Short and Hateful Eight. Uh, and end this episode, we're going to quickly go over our uh, five worst movies of the year. So Andy and I are both Fody members of the Razzies, which is kind of fun. We got our ballots this week, and uh, I actually had to do a lot of write-ins, so I don't know if mine will actually get through. Um, so yeah, top five worst films of the year. Uh, we've, I think we've reviewed all of them for the most part, or um, you've at least heard us talk about them. So, uh, Andy, let's start. What's, what's, what's your number five? Okay. So, um, my number five is a movie that got a lot of Oscar nominations last year. I didn't see it until January of 2015. So, I'm counting this as a, January, or as a 2015 movie, American Sniper. I hated this movie. <laughs> like the again, go back to that scene where Bradley Cooper is supposed to be home connecting with his baby. Oh, that's the and, first thing that popped in my head. <laughs> and it's a fake baby. It's a little plastic cabbage doll. doll. <laughs> like, what the heck? What like I understand what happened with that scene or whatever, but that's just unforgivable guys like just and and the whole story of chris kyle is i don't know maybe it was a fabrication we don't know like how much of it was and yeah it was tragic how he lost his life but this film was told very badly in my opinion and um inflated pieces of uh, his his story that shouldn't have been inflated and glossed over things that were more important. Um, Chris Kyle and how he has dealt with post-traumatic stress and worked with veterans dealing with post-traumatic stress is the better part of this story. And instead, we got a film that, looking back now, 12 months later, I feel helped... Um, light some of the kindling in our current state of Islamophobia in the United States. And I'm going to lay that um, back on Fox News and back on Clint Eastwood for this one. So, F you American Sniper. And Bradley <laughs> Cooper, I'm sorry, Bradley Cooper, it's like half the movies you're in, I love you, and half the movies you're in, I hate you. I don't know, I don't know what, what's wrong. I don't know what's wrong, buddy. I want to like you. I think you're great a lot of the time, but the other half the time, that this was just awful. No. no. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I didn't see it. Uh, I had no desire. I, I am not a Bradley Cooper fan. <clears throat> I think he does a good job in certain roles. And uh, actually, his role as the head of QVC and Joy, he was fantastic in. But I've never really been on the Bradley Cooper bandwagon because every time I see him, I just think of that smarmy a-hole from The Hangover. And that's just kind of stuck with him through all of his roles. So 
Yeah, American Sniper, bah. Uh, my number five actually was Jupiter Ascending, uh, which was the uh, space adventure, uh, boring space adventure, by the way. Um, this movie was stuck in uh, pre-production hell. It actually was supposed to come out in the, as a summer tentpole movie in 2014. I remember seeing trailers for it, and I was like, that looks kind of cool. And literally two weeks before it came out, it got pulled uh, and went through rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. And it finally came out, and it is just a mess. Um, the Wachowskis are great at world building and creating this. And the universe they create is interesting. Like, I actually wanted to learn more about that. But they picked the most boring parts of that universe to to focus on. I mean, you've got uh, Mila Kunis as, uh, well, spoiler alert, the queen of everything. Um, and how do they find out she's a queen? Oh, because bees bow down to her. Bees! I mean, I... Not the bees. No. Bees. Oh, no, no. Channing Tatum shows up as uh, with his guy liner and his magical inline skates that leave light trails like behind him, and he's part dog wolf thingy. And uh, there's, I, it's just such a mess. And um, you can tell it went through so many rewrites and for everything else because there's parts of the script that don't make sense. I will never forget the fact, and this has stuck with me. Since the moment I saw it, that, you know, her name is Jupiter, and there's one scene in the middle of the movie where she meets a bunch of people, and, oh, this, you know, this is Jupiter. She's like, call me Jupe. No one's ever called you Jupe in the entire movie. No one will ever again refer to you as Jupe in the entire movie. What the hell's wrong with you? Um, yeah, there was, they, they recycled scenes. I mean, the, the climax and the penultimate scene are exactly the same. It's rescuing her because she's this damsel who can't do anything. Um, Eddie Redmayne, this is the year he won the Academy Award for Theory of Everything. He better thank the gods that they voted for that award before they saw him in this because his role as Abraxas, blah, 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 whoever, I didn't remember his last name, is so cringeworthily bad. It was like, I almost walked out of the theater. If I did not have to review it, I would have walked out. Um, it's a yeah. horrible movie. There's, It's wasted opportunity because there's so much they could have focused on. Um, yeah, it's... Don't even red box it. Just forget it exists. Yeah, we'll. This is in my top for my bottom five too. And yeah, the Eddie Redmayne. I mean, the fact that it's like somebody told him that the way to build drama is to deliver half of your line like this, and, and then the other half like this, and then the other half. You are very angry and loud, and people must listen to you. Oh, it's horrible. You, dude, the theory of everything. You were you were Stephen Hawking, and you made me feel so much for you, and you sucked so bad in this. <laughs> oh, oh, I just feel bad for everyone involved in this. And that I now I heard that they pulled this movie. Because when the trailers first went up, and I remember this, I remember seeing they put the trailer of this before another press screening movie, um, and they asked us what they thought of the trailer, um, but people were laughing in the theater when they saw the trailer for this. I oh, have, this was um, this was a a surprise showing at Sundance last year. Like it was like uh, they like, hey, we're, we're showing a surprise movie. Come see it. And 
they they went and uh, screened it, and people were laughing and walking out. Yeah, like I, like who thought this was who thought this was a good idea? I mean, there's so many red flags in this. I I feel bad for the Wachowskis. I like I feel like I don't. They deserve it. <laughs> but I they, feel had, like- they had one good idea, and they made one good movie. Well, I'll give them credit because they were involved with V for Vendetta, which I know you don't like, but. They had one good idea, and it was The Matrix, and everything else they've done has been hanging off of the reputation of that movie, and nothing has even come close to being as fun as that was. And it's been 15 years. We probably better, like, come up with something better. <laughs> anyway. So, anyway, so what's your number four? Number four, Unfinished Business, which most of you do not remember, and I haven't seen on a lot of, like, critics' bottom-of list, which I don't... Uh, I don't blame them because it was a completely forgettable movie, except that I hated this so much. Um, this was Vince Vaughn and Tom Wilkinson and Dave Franco. Oh, um, God. I, I forgot about this movie. It's horrible. Yeah, oh. yeah, doing going on a business trip, and James Marston is their competition, and wackiness supposedly ensues and there's uncomfortable nudity and i i still don't understand what this movie was trying to do and i was mostly angry because at the end i felt like there was somewhere in there a kernel of a very beautiful idea for a film about a guy trying to create like a work balance a work-life balance in his life and just couldn't pull it together. Um, if they would have refocused on that, it could have been great. But this was just awful, and I feel bad for everyone involved, especially poor Tom Wilkinson. Man, that guy deserves better. He's a great actor. Yeah. yeah. So my number four uh, was Fifty Shades of Grey, which I uh, actually – didn't I saw in theaters? I didn't pay to go see it though. I actually bought a ticket for Kingsman, and then the sneakers came out at the same time, the same day as Kingsman, uh, which I think we both loved. Yes. Uh, so Fifty Shades of Grey was based on the, uh, I believe it was called the Mommy Porn book series <laughs> about uh, an S and M relationship between a quote unquote young innocent girl and naughty sexually advanced, you know, what's his name, Gray. Um, here's my thing. If you're going to make a sexy movie and the whole premise of the film is about S&M and bondage and, you know, quote unquote hot sex scenes, you got to deliver that. I mean, if anything, it was boring and it's mainly because the main two actors who are playing this was Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan. They, in real life, they hate each other. They hate each other so much. I don't think they're even coming back for the sequels, which, I mean, this movie made a crap ton of money, so you're, you're getting sequels. Um, there's just nothing between them. I mean, it's almost like if you took two pieces of wood and banged them together, you would have had more chemistry than these two had in this movie. Um, it's boring. It's, I want to see yeah. that movie. Oh, yeah. That, that's, it's boring. It's stupid. It's ex- exploitative towards women. Um, and yet people were saying, oh, well, she's taming him. No, he's she's a whore. She's He's buying her off with helicopter rides and a laptop. Um, it, it, honestly, you be if you want to see, just sit at home and watch porn. It's more interesting than this. I mean, it's... Ugh, it's just it's just bad. watch porn. No, just yeah. watch porn. Yeah. 
<laughs> porn. Like, seriously, like, <clears throat> people need to get over it. Oh, oh, I'm going to go see this movie because it's technically not pornography. But that's really what... I mean, I kind of... We talked about this when we talked about uh, Magic Mike. It's like, you know, if that's what you're coming for, just just go watch porn. It's yeah. okay, people. Just... Or- or go to a strip shop, you know, strip club. Go see some yeah. Chippendales dancers. I mean, yeah, we're, we're all sexual beings. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, this, this, there's no excuse for this to exist. This actually was Twilight fan, fan fiction slash fiction. Excuse me. So, you know, slash fiction is the naughty kind. Um, when your whole story is slash fiction, that is based on fan fiction because Twilight was Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you're in for a treat. So, uh, again, this is just, it's bad, uh, it's not sexy, and it's, if anything, it's boring as hell. So, go watch porn or go to strip club. Yep. <laughs> uh, Andy, what did you end up for number three? Number three, Home. The uh, DreamWorks animation movie about Jim Parsons as the alien who, uh, he and his people accidentally invade Earth. And, yeah, I don't know, Rihanna's in it as his erstwhile sidekick, and they make... And to uh, give us the soundtrack. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they make his flying car run on Slurpees, and I don't know oh, what... Oh, that hurts my head. That I gives me know. brain freeze. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in this movie. I've tried to forget it. Poor Steve Martin. Man, Steve Martin, you've had a bad year. <laughs> Um, doing bad voiceover work. You need to fire your agent and and get some better work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't get away with doing digital animation when like this when Pixar is out there and when other great animated movies are out there. Just. Shame, DreamWorks. Just shame. This sucks. Don't don't watch it, and do not let your children watch it. I don't care that it is now free on Netflix. <laughs> don't let them watch it. It's awful. Oh, and I, I have parents coming into my work daily asking for that movie. I'm like, why? Nope. Do you, do you hate your children? <laughs> no. Well, obviously, you hate yourself. Obviously, they do, or or they're trying to make their children stupider. So. Yeah. So, um, my number three, I know, is, is higher up on your list, but um, I three for me is Pixels. Uh, we we reviewed it in depth a while ago. Um, it's Adam Sandler at his laziest worst. Uh, it's actually been kind of funny because he did that stupid, the ridiculous six for Netflix. It's like his he's got some deal with them, and everyone's been like, "Hey, Adam, did you watch this so you can review it?" I'm like, "No, no, it's not in theaters. I don't have to see that piece of crap." So. <laughs> Um, sadly, this one was, uh, it was a great idea. The original two minute short is fantastic. This is just Adam Sandler crapping on everything like he always does. Um, the only reason why this isn't higher on, well, I guess lower on the list is because, um, as I mentioned before, I walked into this knowing what I was getting into. So I was bracing myself for it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's lazy. It's stupid. It's insipid. Uh, one of the few movies I actually walked out the, the last this and the next two I walked out of the theater angry yep uh, absolutely I mean let's just sum this all up Adam Sandler 
hires a stunt double <laughs> to do his moonwalking. That's all two steps of it. All two steps of it. That's all we have to say about this. Ugh, it's just absolutely terrible. Um, yeah. Don't watch Pixels. Yeah, don't. So, uh, and your number two was yeah, number two was Jupiter Ascending. We've already we've already talked about that. It's it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my number two is Fantastic Four. Uh, and going back to what I said with Pixels, the reason why this was high lower on the list was because I walked into Fantastic Four, kind of thinking it was going to be a train wreck, but I had that glimmer of hope because I liked what Josh Trank did with Chronicle, and no, it, it just. It was worse than I could have imagined. Um, it, it it started out bad because they did the whole like you know the Dolby Digital like you know the all around you thing they they do like the the preview, yeah. And the back speakers weren't working, so it was like all you. And that's going to become our joke with all the film critics up here every time we go see a movie, especially in that theater. So that was just a harbinger of things to come, and it, it's bad. I mean, I I hate Miles Teller already. Uh, not just because he's a douchebag in real life, but because I think he's a crappy actor and his performance in Whiplash was a one-off. Um, he not just... my tempo. <laughs> not my epic tempo, Miles Teller. Yeah, just... I every I, I will go back and watch Whiplash just for the scenes where he gets continually bitch-slapped by um, J.K. Simmons because that is hilarious to me. I wish I could just find him and punch that little bastard in the face. I hate him so much. <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, I hope he gets run over by a car. Um... <laughs> No, I, I seriously hate that man. He's just a completely horrible person. He's he's like the Justin Bieber of actors. Oh. Um, untalented, shits on his fans, and thinks he's the greatest thing in the world. So, um, sorry for the PG-13 language, but I, I really do hate him, and I hope he dies. Uh, yeah, horrible thing by him. Uh, Kate Mara's in it. She's wonderful. Uh, don't know why she was in it. Michael B. Jordan's, I mean, he was great in Creed. Horrible. I mean, everything just sucks about this movie. Um... There was a, literally a moment where we were sitting there and it's towards the end of the film when they're fighting Doctor Doom and one of them's like, well, we <clears throat> none of us can beat him alone. And then we're saying the words along with mild, stupid face teller, but we can all, you know, we can beat him together. And one of the film critics behind me literally yelled out, Jesus effing Christ. And that was the best part of the film was his little exclamation there. Uh, it's a piece of crap. One of the worst movies I've ever seen. Stay away. Yeah, this this only barely made it off my my number six uh, of of the year. So, like, I completely agree. This is a horrible movie. The only reason that this wasn't in the top five was because I, I hated American Sniper just that much more. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this this was a terrible movie, and the fact that it's not on my top my top five worst is. A fluke more than anything. Yeah, just stay away. Awful. Yeah, and then uh, you're number one back with Marvel. Give the yeah. right back to Marvel. Um, my number one. We already talked about it. Was Pixels. Um, I'm also gonna throw in since you mentioned it, the Netflix movies of uh, the the whatever six ridiculous six and the mm-hmm. Cobbler, which uh, just oh, it, yeah. they're not even movies. Like and and neither is Pixels. Like what Adam Sandler now like is making no longer qualify as films. They're just terrible. No Adam Sandler. Bad. We do that outside. We do that outside. Well, hopefully, I mean, you know, the 
because pixels bombed like crazy. I, I, I don't remember what it did worldwide because I didn't care enough to look, but I know in the U.S. it bombed. Um, hopefully studios will stop giving him money because he, he – I hate him too, but at least, I mean the worst part with him is he's done good stuff. I mean yeah. Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore and Punch Drunk Love. I mean we've seen that with the right director we can get a good performance out of him. Um, if anyone is slumming in Hollywood, it's him. And honestly, if someone was going to give me $20 million to sit on my ass and make a bad film, I wouldn't care either. I mean, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be in this piece of crap. I don't care. You're giving me $20 million. So hopefully Hollywood will learn and stop giving him money. Well, and before they were, like, they were bad, but they weren't, like, aggressively bad. It's, like, Blended, that was a stupid movie. And... Yay! Someone paid Adam Sandler to go on a vacation in Africa uh, with Drew Barrymore, and but I feel like now Pixels and the Netflix movies—they are aggressively bad. It's like he's trying to put out terrible movies to troll us. Like, oh, my fans literally, literally want to see pieces of shit, so I'm going to <clears throat> give them to them. Because that's what I think it is that they want. And so, yeah, I don't know. Damn. Uh, and then my number one, which I, I think we all would be surprised by, was uh, Love the Coopers. Again, we went into this the other day. I don't have the energy to do it again. Uh, but it's the the worst movie I've seen in years. I hated every second of it. Uh, I some, some of our fellow film critics and I were riffing it the entire movie. Much to the chagrin of the uh, blue-haired old biddies next to us. Um, I don't care. You guys have bad taste in movies. If you enjoy this movie, uh, just for just, I don't exist anymore for you. Just leave. Go. Um, it, it's bad. This, like we were joking that, you know, bad children should get taken to go see uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. Alvin and the Chipmunks to the Star Wars. Naughty adults for Christmas should have gotten taken to see Love the Coopers instead of anything else. Uh, put it on repeat viewing if you want to torture people. It's that bad. Woof, woof, Merry Christmas. Oh, hate it. So, anyways, that wraps up our five worst movies of the year. Um, next week, it's, it's a very small, small release of movies. Uh, we have Anna Melissa, which is the stop-motion R-rated movie, interestingly enough. Uh, that looks kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if they're doing the screening here, but I'll definitely try to hop out and see it. But uh, we're also going to include our five best movies of the year. Uh, and then we're going to dive way into Star Wars The Force Awakens uh, and spoil the hell out of it. So for those of you who've seen the movie, join in next week so we can kind of dig into it and talk more. Um, for those who haven't, you'll probably want to skip that part because uh, we're going to re- reveal a bunch of stuff. So cool. Well, everyone have a good week. Uh, Happy New Year's. And hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon.